Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. I'm Indre Viscontis. Welcome to another episode of Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. In past episodes of this show, we've taken a deep dive into certain animals, like the beaver or the coyote. Now let's turn to the fox. This enigmatic animal has been part of human history for as long as fables have been around. And despite efforts to domesticate them, they haven't become part of our households. Why is that? Adele Brand is a mammal ecologist and also has a personal relationship with foxes, as she grew up in the English countryside where the fox is prevalent. So without further ado, let's jump in and get a deeper understanding of the hidden world of the fox. Adele Brand, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. The fox has been a part of human civilization and culture since the time of Aesop, at least, uh, and and I don't know, maybe even earlier. Uh, and even, but it's not like we have a real domestic relationship with the fox the way we do with other animals that sort of make sense for us to sort of include in our fairy tales and fables. So, why is the fox so interesting to us for thousands of years? Yeah, it's really interesting to get the sort of historical context to that. And foxes have been living very close to people for a very long time. If you look at some of the archaeological data from places like Spain and Israel, that they even they're fox skeletons that are put in human burial sites, which indicates that people many thousands of years ago still um, had a real interest in these animals and an awareness that they were sharing the landscape with them. Um, foxes in a modern context, have really caught human emo- human emotions in many different ways. They're something which is, I guess, a little bit exotic in the sense that they're a bit like a dog, but not really. And there's something from the wildwood which can coexist in the middle of our biggest cities. They are somewhat like a dog. And I, I think there's been some, at least I've heard it in uh, Russia, some attempt to kind of domesticate foxes. And yet, you know, we don't, they're super cute, but we don't keep them as pets. <laughs> no. And um, yeah, I certainly don't recommend anybody tries to keep a wild-born fox as a pet. I've I've rescued quite a few um, orphaned cubs over the years. And yeah, it's a little bit like having a tornado in a cage. They're just a little bit crazy. Um, yeah, they've never been... We don't, they're certainly not a domestic species like dogs. 
And obviously, there's quite a lot of debate over exactly how dogs and humans first, or wolves and humans, uh, first managed to sort of make that relationship. But I guess the fox wasn't as useful as the wolf in the terms that it can't be trained for hunting. So you uh, have had a relationship with foxes from your childhood. So how did you first uh, encounter foxes and, and why have they become so important to you? I've grown up in an area that's had a lot of wildlife around me. So from the time I was very young, I was always climbing trees and running through the meadows and doing all those things that children these days, unfortunately, I'd always get the opportunity to do. Uh, foxes really stood out to me um, through all the animals that are around here. They've got such strong personalities and to be able to follow the lives of individual foxes um, is something that, again, they were sharing the landscape with people, a very familiar landscape to me and everyone else who lives here, but just looking at it in a very different way. So it developed from that initial sort of enjoyment of watching them and curiosity to wanting to know a bit more about how they how they were surviving in the, in my village um, through to a more sort of scientific basis so, um, and photography as well. I set up a blog and... Um, yeah, just uh, over the years, I've got to know many of them and been involved with them in many different ways. So usually when I think about the fox and if when the fox is talked about in in stories, it's a lone fox. And, you know, you don't really think of fox families except, you know, there's maybe like a mother and some cubs. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the social life of the fox? And I know in your book you talk about there are a couple of different uh, times in the fox's life where it may or may not be more or less social. So kind of walk us through, uh, you know, maybe we could just start with, you know, are foxes solitary mainly? Um, and then what kind of social lives might they have? Yeah, there's long been a belief that foxes are solitary almost after the manner of wild cats, but they do live in family groups. The size of those groups will depend upon factors like the stability of the area, I mean, how, how much persecution there is. So in a situation where fox families are being hunted and they're more likely to break up. Um, but yes, they do live in family groups. So a typical fox family in my area will consist of a mated pair, their cubs of the year, and some non-breeding adults that will help raise the cubs. But in addition to that sort of core unit, there's quite a number of foxes in any one population that travel around independently. They're really looking for a mate and territory of their own. So you have these sort of core settled groups and then these sort of mobile nomad foxes. And, and so like... Walk me through a day in the life of a fox. <laughs> I mean, you know, let, let, let's, you know, I, I, I understand, you know, being a parent myself, I know probably what the parenting foxes are doing. <laughs> but like, you know, maybe either one of these kind of hanger on foxes or, or uh, one of the nomads. Like, what, what, what's, a, what's a day like? <laughs> well, wherever they are in the world, foxes always have certain things which they have to prioritize, obviously shelter and food. And to some extent, looking for mates as well. So... They're not nocturnal. In areas where they're not disturbed, you can meet them in any hour of the day and night. But they will, unlike wolves, which have a very much a feast and famine lifestyle, a wolf will gorge on a moose and not need to eat again for some time. Foxes need to eat quite regularly because they have much smaller stomachs. So any part of their any given day, they are going to be looking for food. Um, certainly around here, they will... They typically start to become active in the evening. As I say, you can see them in the daytime as well, particularly the lower ranking foxes that are trying to avoid the more dominant individuals in the group. And they will travel around their territories. Um, they will go to places that they know are good 
um, for food, and that will vary throughout the year. So I don't know if there is one sort of typical day in the life of a fox, and the, their life in the winter is very different from that in the summer. And so you're you're probably, um, or at least you started out being really familiar with the life of the fox in the UK. And um, on this show in the past, we had Dan Flores, who's also a, a sort of wildlife historian, uh, who was talking about the relationship between coyotes, uh, in particular, in, in the US. He called it, he had a book called Coyote America. And sort of, you know, is, is it, let's, let's sort of talk about, you know, the, the, the role that the coyote has played in American history. Is that a similar story in terms of foxes in the UK? Or, um, you know, what what do you think about the role of the fox in, in the UK in particular? Is that different from the role it plays in other countries? Yeah, there is some similarity. Um, it's coaches obviously have a species which can be quite controversial in the US. And in some areas, they're quite heavily persecuted. Other people find them really interesting and um, are sort of working to diffuse human wildlife conflict. With foxes, they they have always played quite a large role in our folklore, and that is the case right the way across their range, really, and it's uh, right the way through to Japan, um, and almost everywhere you go, you will find foxes having a strong sort of cultural level. In the UK, they have come in for quite a lot of um, cons- has been quite a lot of concern about foxes from some sectors of society in the past. Obviously, farmers historically have had some doubts about them. They've always been betrayed as the animal that attacks chickens. But as with large predators in the US, um, we're now sort of trying to move forward and um, find ways for people and wildlife to coexist. That is kind of an interesting point that you bring up. And and, and Dan talks about that too, how, uh, you know, the coyote is kind of a polarizing creature uh, in, in the US. And yet, I don't know that, I mean, the fox, like we kind of at least in terms of folklore, we enjoy the fact that it's cunning. I mean, I don't think that you could say, I mean, I guess maybe there's people who, yes, have, you know, hen houses that that, that really hate foxes. But can you tell us maybe a little bit why the fox has, has been kind of revered as this cunning, smart animal, whereas the coyote is considered vermin by some people? Well, with the fox, I think it's <laughs> they, they are incredibly intelligent and incredibly adaptable and very much capable of experimenting with new behaviours. And I think they're quite a challenging animal at times to keep out of a garden. And I guess that in a way that has filtered into this reputation that they're cunning, which isn't necessarily that fair because they're just trying to survive like everything else. I think with coyotes, it's... I. I have sort of detected in my travels around North America that there is an incredible level of hostility towards them, which really goes beyond and above what might be considered proportionate to the risk that they pose to sheep. Um, some of the arguments that we have with foxes in more urban areas are similar to those that you'll find with urban coaches in the US. And obviously the fox is quite a lot smaller and um, the risk of having a serious negative encounter with a fox is vanishingly low. But nonetheless, I have certainly found in the UK that people who are not familiar with wildlife can be quite surprised to suddenly find foxes walking across their backyards. And that has provoked comments which are not dissimilar to those that sometimes people in places like Vancouver direct towards coyotes. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's, there's, I don't really worry about a fox coming and taking the baby from the backyard. <laughs> but people do have that worry about coyotes. Mm. Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the key differences really is that a lot of the 
concern about coyotes has been triggered by people feeding them and that has encouraged coyotes to come close to people and that in times that has led to coyotes nipping people out in campgrounds in the national parks whereas in the UK I mean it's a very different situation where feeding foxes has been something that people in sort of rural and semi-rural places have done for a very long time and it doesn't seem to lead to that kind of behavior. And so in the UK, there there seems to also, though, be this history of hunting foxes um, that, you know, I, I don't know that we have, I mean, people don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't, I don't think that in the US we've had the sort of hunting of coyotes that's kind of like, you know, for, as, as part of the kind of cultural history, um, you know, other than just to get rid of them. Um, so how is it that the UK has maintained a kind of positive relationship with the fox when, you know, there is this kind of fox hunting tradition? I think, yeah, well, fox hunting with hounds was made illegal some years ago now. Um, there are other forms of fox persecution, which still continue. Um Particularly, they're still shot on quite a regular basis, and that still continues to affect them. And yeah, it's it's. I, I wouldn't. Yeah, the, the issue with fox hunting with hounds is that very often the people who do it have put out very negative stories about foxes in order to kind of justify this activity. So that has been a problem uh, for fox conservationists and advocates in the UK. In the US, um, I'm certainly aware of some rather unpleasant activities that take place regarding coaches, the killing contests that take place in some parts of the West. Um, I believe they've been made illegal in California now, but they still take place in other locations. And this is where very large numbers of coaches and sometimes bobcats as well are basically shot for a competition, which, um, yeah, is quite a difficult thing to see. Yeah, I, I'm not saying <laughs> Americans are less gruesome in terms of their <laughs> yeah. relationship with uh, with our, you know, animal but um, so can you tell me a little bit about sort of, you know, how successful the fox has been in terms of adapting to environment? We've talked about, you know, the foxes being in, in uh, the U.S. and the U.K., but um, you also mentioned that it's the world's most numerous carnivore. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, um, it's an incredible success story, really, considering the direction that most mammal populations are going at the moment. Uh, this fox is an animal that has very simple needs. It's, I often sort of say the sort of polar opposite to a fox would be something like a giant panda that has very specific requirements. It needs bamboo, no bamboo, no panda. But because foxes are just so completely unfussy in what they eat and where they live, they can adapt to almost any environment. So... Not only do they live in the sort of classic woodlands of the eastern United States and, and Europe, but they're also found in deserts, they're found in mountain areas, they're found in the far north, um, they're found south into the sort of subtropical areas of places like Burma. And yeah, they, they have adapted and because they they are just so unfussy and they're just so willing to try new food and um, new opportunities. Yeah, so I guess that's a plug for, you know, being open to new experiences yep. for any of us <laughs> if you want to survive. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So you've also had uh, the opportunity to foster a number of foxes. And so that gives you a kind of like insider's view onto the personalities of different foxes. So can you tell us a couple stories of sort of how you came to foster them and what that was like? And, you know, you've got some great names for them. So maybe tell us tell us some some fox stories. Yes. Well, I approached a charity in the UK that I knew were looking for people to take on cubs because people in the UK, if well, I guess everywhere really, if you find an orphaned animal and yeah. most people are not going to walk away, they're going to try and do what's right for it. So there are charities over here which will take in wildlife that um, has for whatever reason lost its mother and try and give it a second chance. So I ended up with some of these cubs. I had a pen in my back garden and I used to go in there every day and feed them and I, I didn't try to tame them, but nonetheless, they were very, very lively and um, one of them in particular was a little cub called Chatter and she really did chatter she, every time she saw me she was Whoa! and um, she would climb up the fencing and watch me coming uh, she climbed my, climbed me on one occasion and sat on my head while I was trying to feed her which was quite an interesting experience um, so yeah I bought them cat toys and they're very keen on cat climbing frames and that sort of thing and peanut butter on toast as well so it's integral wow <laughs> I mean, watching a fox eat peanut butter must be a pretty cute thing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what happens when once the foxes are, are sort of old enough, do you do you release them back into the wild? Do, you, do they come back and see you? How does that all work? I would love to have, have them released locally, but actually that particular litter was taken back to Kent. Um, there was a release site there. So what you do in that situation is that you soft release them. So you'll put them in a pen for a little while and sort of get them used to the idea of the general surroundings and then you'll leave the pen door open and the fox will be able to go outside um, but the pen is still there with food in it so they will be able to go back and sort of get that support for a little while until they've adapted to being in the wild. It's um, the, the cubs that I had uh, weren't actually siblings they came from various people who picked them up all over the country um, right down to the Isle of Wight actually on one occasion um, but they were sort of a foster family and they got to know each other. It's really important when you're looking after wild orphans to raise them with um, other orphans of the same species. Um, that helps them develop the social skills and really helps them sort of fit in with sort of wider fox society when they're released. 
So how do we know how many foxes are out there? This is one of the things that I really uh, kind of enjoyed about your book is that you have this whole chapter called <laughs> Counting Foxes and yes. sort of like <laughs> describes the problem and then how it happens. So mm. walk us through the process of figuring out how many foxes there are in an area. Yeah, um, it is something which I did talk about at some length because it's something that tends to come up in casual conversation. A lot of people will say the fox population is exploding when really they haven't gone out to do the actual science behind that. It is really hard to count most mammals, particularly, well, if you have something that's quite visible like deer, you, you, there are some techniques you can use for that. But something like a fox, which is a little bit more elusive, is quite challenging. The technique which I have used is basically counting their, their scat, their droppings. So there's a formula which somebody has worked out for the average number of scats that a fox produces per day. So if you go, go through um, your transect, your survey area, and you remove all the scats, then you can come back, say, three weeks later and count all the new ones, and then you'll have some idea of how many foxes are using the site. Um, it is an imperfect art, but that gives you that at least gives you something sort of um, qualitative to go on. And I guess it, it, it kind of underscores the fact that it's kind of a dirty job. It's not like you just get yeah. to go sit in the forest <laughs> and count baby foxes. Which Yeah, I, I think people often think mammal work is really glamorous. But in reality, yeah, you are looking at scat a lot. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about uh, kind of the, the things that are you know, if we if it's, a, if it's a numerous carnivore, it might not be something that we need to worry about. And yet I think that people do worry about sort of numbers of foxes. And, and you know, we certainly don't want them to be threatened in any way. Um, so what are the potential sort of human related activities that uh, do threaten if they if they do um, fox populations? Well, um, foxes as a whole are doing pretty well, they're pretty widespread. Um, but there are some local areas where they are actually in some trouble. And there's one subspecies in the United States, the Sierra Nevada fox, which is very rare. Um, and they've also seemed to have gone extinct in South Korea. So there are some local places where um, you know, p local persecution or local habitat loss have quite severely affected them. In England, things that impact foxes, um, obviously we have a very different landscape here to that in most of the US. It's a much higher human density, which means also it's much higher road density and bits of habitat that are left tend to be quite fragmented. So foxes and indeed all animals are at risk from traffic as they move around the landscape. And um, there are some diseases that can affect them, particularly scarcoptic mange. It's, um, it's not a very pleasant disease. It is also present in the US. And I believe it was actually introduced deliberately back in the day by people trying to kill wolves. But in the UK, it, its impact seems to vary on different areas. And up in Bristol, um, where there was quite a high density fox population at one point. An outbreak of mange actually reduced it by over 90%. But in other parts of the country, this seems to just exist at low levels. You know, as, as you mentioned in your book, there's probably not, uh, it's not a good idea that if you do find a fox and you want to, you know, take care of it, to bring it into your house. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like you kind of make, make that point several times. And, and uh, you know, you also, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this, this um, you know, this, this Russian program to sort of domesticate foxes. And so, so tell us your thoughts on, on that. And, and why you think it's not a good idea. Yeah, I I can understand on one level that people see that foxes are very beautiful animals and there seems to be something in human nature that just wants to you know, get as close to them as we are to dogs. But they are much more interesting as wildlife and we can still get to know them when they're out and about in the countryside. 
as far as the Russian program is concerned, um, I do have some concerns about the sort of ethical and welfare sides of that and deliberately breeding animals to be friendly and deliberately breeding them to be fearful. I think that's something which should perhaps raise a few red flags. But that's, I think that's what I think that that uh, maybe some of our listeners wouldn't have realized made that connection that by, you know, essentially by making them friendly, you also make them more anxious. Yeah, so I think they were selective for behavioural traits. So some of them were selected to be more friendly towards people. And they did actually start to physically change when that, as that process continued. Like They developed different coat colours, for example. Um, so what's being produced is not a wild fox. It's something completely different. And so how does that, you know, from the ethical standpoint, you know, a lot of the show we talk about how science can inform uh, aspects of society. So, so you know, I think the, someone might make the argument that, oh, well, but we do that with dogs all the time. Why is it okay to, you know, create a specialized dog? Uh, or is it okay? I mean, you know, we could argue that maybe it isn't, especially dogs that, you know, have certain features that make it hard for them to breathe, like the pug, or make them more susceptible to illnesses. Um, is that, is that, are you, is, is that around the same line of the argument that you're making here? Or is there, um, something else that, that you would like our listeners to consider? I think as far as dogs are concerned, that's a relationship which has developed naturally over the course of tens of thousands of years. And our relationship with dogs is very special. And there is a real temptation, I think, for many people to try and replicate that with animals, other animals that look attractive. And I think sometimes it's a question of stepping back and actually looking at it from the animal's perspective. I mean, foxes do not need to be domesticated. So if we do that, then that's something that we're really doing for ourselves. Um, yeah, there, I, I would share the concern which I have, I've seen other people raise that, well, uh, that breeding dogs and indeed cats to, in ways that are not really that healthy is something which is of concern. And indeed also with horses and as, as breeding becomes more and more intense, they they can uh, develop certain illnesses as well. So I think we need to figure out how to sort of live humanely with the animals that we've already got before adding any new animals to the domestic list. So I want to remind our listeners that uh, Adele Brand's book, The Hidden World of the Fox, is now available at uh, booksellers everywhere. Um, in your epilogue, you start with a sentence that I found really poignant, and I wanted to ask you to expand on it for us. Um, it goes, the magic of foxes is their behavioral plasticity. Even the most mundane sighting can end with a surprising twist. <laughs> so what were some twists? Yeah, it is amazing with foxes. I've been watching them now for uh, 26 years, I think it is. And they still find ways to surprise me. And it's just often worthwhile just to keep watching them just a little bit longer and just ne won't know what's going to happen. Just to give an example of that, I was out walking in Norfolk and East Anglia in England on one occasion, one rather cold day, and I saw a fox walking across at a pasture lamb being grazed by ponies. On the surface, there was nothing odd about that, but as I kept watching, I noticed this fox seemed a little bit confused by the fact that he had a magpie following him, which is, I'm sure most, of you, most people will be aware, it's a large bird like a crow. And another magpie and another magpie, and eventually nine of them lined up and followed him all the way around this field. They followed him into a stable. They followed him as he came, went and sat down by the horses. And it gave me a series of the most hilarious photographs that I think I've ever taken. So I've had foxes locally. There was some um, who just amused people in the village. We had one a couple of winters ago who, made, who specialized in walking off of Wellington boots. Um, which <laughs> Is this Imelda? 
Uh, it wasn't Imelda. No, it was one of my local foxes. Imelda took it one step oh, further. Okay. She she took, uh, I think it was hun- over 100 pairs in the end. Um, yeah, she was a fox in Germany who got in the press through just, she just kept on and on stealing shoes from people's front porches and taking them off to the woodland. They are incredibly playful. Anything they can pick up, they will play with. I, I've actually caught one on my trail camera that was walking off with a toy dinosaur. Uh, they will play on trampolines if they're available. They they will just exploit anything in the landscape and just give it their own twist. <laughs> so for anyone who wants to go out and experience the life of a fox, uh, the back, at the end of your book, you have the sort of fox watchers toolkit. So can you just uh, give some advice to our listeners of, you know, what, what's the best way to watch a fox? That will depend to some degree about which part of the country they're in, um, what the local habitat like, <laughs> uh, where there's coaches around foxes will tend to try and avoid them. I think probably a good place to start is to actually learn tracking and field skills. So get yourself a really good book on wildlife footprints and other wildlife sign. It just adds so much to your walks when you're outside in the great outdoors if you can read the landscape and you start to start to piece together what foxes and other animals are doing. It's just so much more rewarding uh, to understand them that way. To actually see them, um, yeah, it's much easier in some places than others and Obviously, Yellowstone is a place where people quite often get some wonderful film of them jumping into headfirst into really deep snowpacks. Um, in somewhere like England, it's possible sometimes to see them wandering around the fields hunting for voles, which are small animals like mice. But yeah, just just learn as much as you can about their lifestyle and how they're used in the landscape and what prey animals they're likely to be focusing on or indeed prey fruit because they also eat a lot of cherries and blackberries. And um, that's probably the best place to start. And then if you do decide to feed them, you also have some advice on what are the best uh, dietary yeah. options. <laughs> I would say in the US that I would advise everybody not to feed foxes because the culture is very different in, well, certainly the parts of the United States and Canada that I've been, where there's been quite a quite a strong movement against that. Um, and I would be concerned that if people do feed foxes, it'd be putting them at some risk, uh, particularly in national parks is always a big no-no. Um, in Britain, as I say, it's kind of different here for whatever reason. People have just fed wildlife, whether it be birds, badgers or foxes for a long time. And that's generally more accepted, though it's still quite controversial in urban areas. So, yeah, some people just take that way too far and they put out cake and other things that are really not great for foxes. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to give some advice about that. So, keep Yeah, on. they are, after all, carnivores. So... Yeah, they, they do have a pretty omniv- omnivorous diet. Um, a lot of their food is actually earthworms and fruit. But yeah, they're not certainly not adapted to eat cakes for sure. <laughs> so what do you see as some markers of our future relationship with the fox? What do you hope uh, will, will be sort of the fox and human relationship future? And, and what are some worries you might have? I think I think the sort of fox frontier, as it were, is really in urban areas. And um, what I would like is for the fox to provide a bit of a gateway back to nature because it is we're probably the most urbanised generation that's ever lived and a lot of people just don't have contact with the great outdoors very much anymore. And even in central London or central New York, there are foxes. And to be able to see them and to be able to see something of nature, something that's wild and non-human is actually, it, it just it's just that connection Um which is easy to overlook, but the fox can be a sort of tutor for us if we let it be. I think my concern would be that 
intolerance wins the day. There are people out there who just get very offended at the idea of foxes being in their neighbourhood, even if they're doing no harm whatsoever. And that's difficult for a scientist to deal with because when an animal is actually causing damage, then you can go in there and find a humane solution to that. But if people just have an ideological objection to foxes or indeed coyotes, that's much harder to harder to resolve. So, yeah, they're sort of bound in together, I guess. Well, Adele Brand, thank you so much for sharing your work with us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, and Charles Blyle. Thanks to all of you for being such longtime supporters of Inquiring Minds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and I'll see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.